Hi, I'm Simone van Nivenhuizen, researcher at the Australia-China Relations Institute at the University of Technology, Sydney. Today, I'm in Beijing, and I'm joined by Nick Bisley, head of humanities and social sciences, and professor of international relations at La Trobe University. We've been participating in the 16th International Conference of Australian Studies in China. And we've recently been on a panel discussing key issues in the Australia-China relationship, and in particular, focusing on the changing world order. Today, I'm going to be speaking with Nick Bisley about his paper, which is called "Anxious Ally Faces a Changing World Order: Australia's Foreign Policy Discourse." Welcome to the program, Nick.、A、pleasure to be with you, Simone. So, your paper is called "Anxious Ally Faces a Changing World Order." What is making Australia anxious, and is it just about China, or or are other factors at play here? I think it's a bit of a common theme in Australian foreign policy. If you go right back to 1942, that、um, at any given moment, foreign policy commentators and elites say, you know, we are living in a dangerous time or a period of、um, unprecedented historical change or great uncertainty.、Um, and today, you know, in the current circumstances, I think there's a risk of being caught up in, you know, the the sense that. Everything is changing, and it's, it's a radically different time, and missing some of the points of continuity. But it, it, nonetheless, I think it's still the case that we we do live in a period of、um, quite radical、um, change, and it's causing states around the world a sense of、um, anxiety and unease, and kind of uncertainty about、um, the the sort of policy settings they may have, and the idea of both the values, the institutions, and the like that that we've all become so used to, and we're setting policy, foreign policy priorities.、Uh, Kind of no longer quite what they seem. So, you know, in Australia and certainly here in Beijing, the things that we've been talking about is is, is about China、um, and the power transition that is represented by China's dramatic growth in in、um, economic prosperity and its and its influence and、um, and its military capabilities that have gone with it.、Uh, and I think that's in a you know a, a big first part of that that's causing countries around the world to kind of just be a little unsettled. And it's not surprising. You know, I often say to Chinese colleagues, you know, the It's not surprising that the rest of the world is a bit unsettled by you because you're just so big. You know that that when a country of China's scale gets wealthy, it's it will by definition、um, unsettle things. But it's not just about China,、um, and not just about other emerging economies, and they're important like India and the resurgence of Russia.、Uh, it's also, I think, about the ways in which the U.S. is not quite the country we once thought it was, and that's both a kind of material story where. Um, you know the share of you know, U.S. share of global GDP declines every year,、um, and questions of American power、uh, are are very real. Just in terms of sort of relative competition, you know, America is not on the mat. America is not you know can be should not be counted out in power terms, and it remains hugely influential by every reasonable measure. But it's just not as powerful as it was.、Um, but probably more importantly, I think there's a lot of uncertainty around just what America is for, and that sense of the purpose of American. Um, policy in American leadership, and that's probably been exacerbated by the election of Donald Trump, and certainly for allies around the world,、um, the election of Trump represents a whole range of very significant kind of bits of you know very significant source of uncertainty. Not only、um, the U.S. is not the country we we thought we knew, you know that that America could elect someone like this sort of. I think many allies feel almost betrayed that the Americans could do this to us. It, it, if that's not being a little bit、um, <laughs> a bit trite,、uh, but also I think more importantly that what Trump represents. So the fact that the the party system couldn't corral this guy, that、um, you've got a political system that is 
clearly alienating electors that you've got the lowest election turnout in, you know, certainly since the Second World War, is indicating that there's something not quite right in, in the body politic in the United States. And we don't know where Trump's going to take the US. And that's something that uh, is inherently for an ally of the US, but also elsewhere, um, something that I think puts puts the cat amongst the pigeons, so to speak. And I think finally, what we're also seeing is the set of kind of values and institutions that were created after the Second World War. Um, that are embodied in you know the UN system, uh, the international financial institutions, you know the the um, World Bank, the IMF, and then more recently the WTO. All of these have varying degrees of of structural problems around them that I think are being exacerbated by uh, the contemporary circumstances. Some of these problems are about legitimacy. Some of these problems are about performance. Uh, but taken together, you know that the power is not where it once was. The dominant values and institutions that we've come to sort of be the things that set the parameters for, for policy um, are changing. And American primacy, and certainly the thing from an Australian point of view that's been most important, um, we now have question marks about it where there didn't used to be. So there's, there, I, I think there are good reasons to take seriously the claims that Australia is in a period of that's quite unlike anything we've known since we've become a properly independent foreign policy player in the 1940s. And how has Australia been managing these anxieties? Has, from your perspective, has it been doing a good or effective job of managing them to date? To me, what's most striking is how, even though, by I think all objective measures, the past well, really ten years, you know, since this is this stuff's been beginning to bubble up to the surface over, since two thousand and eight. Um, so we've got ten years of beginning to kind of go. Okay, things are. Things are heading off in a new direction. You know, the China rise story is not a, a new story. Um, and so what's surprising, I think, is how little change there has been in the Australian foreign policy direction um, or, or rhetoric, uh, or, so, or what some people would say, you know, the, the difference between um, declaratory and substantive policy. Um, so if you looked at what Australia is doing, you know, we've still, the, the alliance with the United States remains at the centrepiece of our strategic and defence policy. Um, we continue to talk about the benefits of open trade, of globalisation and all these sorts of things. Um, there's been some shifts. There's probably three most obvious ones that we've seen in recent years um, that re- represent, I think, the most significant responses to this change. Um, one is increasing military spending. So we've set out uh, on the most ambitious piece of defence expenditure and expansion in, capa- in military capabilities outside of wartime since the Second World War. Um, and that's you know that and that's and that's bipartisan. It's not going to disappear if if Malcolm Turnbull loses the next election. Um, the second uh, significant change I think was has been some efforts to try to diversify some of our strategic relationships, uh, or more diversify is perhaps a little not not quite getting the characterize characterization right. But what we've seen is a considered effort to develop new security focused partnerships with particularly with India and Japan. Um, and that's clearly an attempt to sort of say, well, there's there's some uncertainty about the US and we need to find some other stabilisers and these are countries who we think share our interests and our values. Um, and the third, uh, this is more of the rhetorical uh, side of the equation, but you know, in, in diplomacy and foreign policy uh, rhetoric matters, uh, is the use of uh, the rules-based order as a kind of almost catechism when describing what Australia wants in the, in, in the world. Uh, and the Indo-Pacific as this sort of geostrategic uh, concept that describes the kind of region that Australia inhabits. And, and I think both of these are attempts to signal 
ways in which um, Australia is trying to respond to this. So you know, rules-based order is about signalling... And the way in which it's become so important to a lot of Australian foreign policy is about signalling that there's something up in the international order. It's being destabilised by China. In some cases, you'll even have government officials saying China is challenging the rules-based order and something you've written about. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's... And, and in, if you're being a bit cynical... Um, you could see the use of the rules-based order is basically a code for saying we don't like what you're doing, China, without having to say those words. Uh, and then the Indo-Pacific is an attempt, I think, firstly at a, at a simple empirical level to say the region that Australia inhabits, particularly the maritime side of it, is becoming bigger and the connections between the Indian Ocean and the Western Pacific are, are stronger and creating this kind of strategic system which puts Australia at the centre of the action, and I think there's a little bit of strategic narcissism about that. Uh, But normatively, and certainly what we've seen here in Beijing um, over the past couple of days, is Indo-Pacific is seen as code for containment of China, that the Indo-Pacific is a a sort of normative declaration of a containment policy that's designed to hem China in. And I don't think that's necessarily what policymakers in Canberra, or at least not all policymakers in Canberra, think. But that it is perceived that way by, you know, reasonably informed people who don't particularly bear any great malice towards China, that that they think that tells you a bit about how Australia's response to an attempt to manage these anxieties is being perceived. So in a world where Australia's going, things are changing, we're a bit unsettled about a whole range of issues, we've got these new dimensions going on and they look like, viewed from Beijing and elsewhere, as an attempt to militarily hem China in. So it's given the importance of China to the Australian economy, you, you wouldn't sit there and say that's necessarily um, a great outcome. Mm. So I might follow up on that by asking whether you think that Australia should consider these changing dynamics in the world order as opportunities rather than as threats. So you were speaking about um, the formulation around the Indo-Pacific concept, for example, but are there other ways that Australia could be developing its policy to um, to view China's rise and the rise of other powers, such as India, for example, as opportunities? Well, I think the, the, the striking thing during periods like the current geopolitical moment where you have got the, really the return of great power rivalry in, in East Asia that's, certainly from my point of view, is already upon us. If you're taking a more moderate view, you might say it's it's coming, but I think that's a question of when, not if. Um, great power rivalry becomes a really dominant force in our region. Um, periods like that for second-tier powers like Australia can be seen as, depending on your point of view, either as periods of great opportunity, because if you've got major powers jostling for influence, what they're always in the lookout for is is friends. They're always looking to sort of pick, to get favourites to get get you in their camp. Um, and astute and adroit middle-ranking powers can take advantage of these circumstances, just thinking purely geopolitically. Uh, And the challenge that Australia's got, or at the moment the problem Australia's got, is, just from that point of view, uh, is that the relationship with the United States um, limits the room for manoeuvre, so that an Australia that is bound to the US in the way that we currently are is not a credible player as a sort of swing voter, if you like, in, in geopolitics. You know, it'd be like being a, a marginal voter in a, in a swing electorate in, in Sydney with your great big blue Liberal posters out the front and the Labour people come by and say, so, you know, is your vote going our way? You go, yeah, and they look at you and go, no, it's not. You know, we know, we know where you stand. Um, so there's that. I think there's also a sense that um, 
at, at a deeper level, I think the, the in Australia there's in Canberra at any rate there is a view that um, the current order can be protected and that the and and sustained in the light of these changes. Um, that is to say, uh, China's here, and yes, we know that it's not satisfied with certain aspects of um, the the region, the, the the current regional dispensation, like you know the disputed territories in the South China Sea, just as one example. Uh, but overall, we think that um, you know it's in China's best interests to realise that it's not it's not smart for them to do what they're doing and that we can all benefit if we just set aside our differences and continue on the path that we've been on. Uh, and for Australia, I think that's a mistake because it... it and I think it's a mistake for Australia and Japan and the US because um, that that's to say that the kind of world that um, we want to sustain, I think, is not sustainable in the light of the emergence of these new powers, that they don't want the region to continue as it was in the past. Um, and so the opportunity that I think is being missed is to, to begin to renegotiate the terms of how the region gets along, what the dispensation looks like, whether it's geopolitical or normative or values-based or institutions, uh, to reflect this new circumstance. And instead, we're trying to say, we're trying to like sandbag the old order and sort of go, there's nothing to see here. It's all okay. China, why, why don't you see that it's in your interests? And, you know, to me, the, the, the fundamental kind of problem is that we, you know, Australia, Japan, the US and others are kind of saying to China, here's the deal. Accept it. Can't you accept it? Can't you see how this is in your, your interests? Um, and China's going, well, we, we know what our interests are. And because we, you know, it's like, why, how do, why do you think you know our interests better than we do? Mm. And there is that sort of cognitive disconnect going on. So I think there is a, at the moment, there is a sense of what we've got works. These anxieties threaten that. And so we have to protect them rather than saying, okay, now's the time for some creative rethinking of what we need to do and to, to find some common ground. And there's plenty, the, the right thing is there's plenty out there. And we've heard at this conference a lot of the negative stuff and a lot of the challenges. But if you strip out the negative mm -hmm. problems and the you know, very legitimate concerns that, that people have in Beijing, that they feel like students in Australia are being you know, defamed and tarnished and targeted and the like and being caught up in in you know sensationalist journalism um the common interests that australia and china and others share far outweigh the um the, the the clashes of interest and clashes of values so there's lots to work on the problem is i think we haven't yet realized that that we do need to do this work and we do need to find it we do, we do need to build a new consensus around things and that's that's the opportunity that i think is being missed so the paper that you presented today also discussed the dominant discourses around Australian foreign policy and where scholars see Australian foreign policy moving to in the future. Could you just briefly sum up these uh, dominant discourses and maybe just comment to what extent these actually reflect real policy decisions in Australia? Uh, now you're, you're, you're stealing the opportunity of the listeners to read my paper fresh. <laughs> um, so what I tried to do is, is to look at how people have talked about Australian foreign policy in this period of change and sort of grappled with various issues and, and tried to identify common themes or ideas amongst a pretty disparate group of people writing in, in, in for, for quite different purposes. So you see scholars um, and scholarly articles that includes, you know, looking at journalism and, pub, and, and also public policy documents and the like. So, but what I've, what I've sort of argue is that um, if you have, if you, if you sort of map out Australian foreign policy discourse on kind of two axes, uh, one axis is around uh, um, 
a, a sort of liberal realist spectrum. That's to say, are you someone who thinks power is the most important thing or are you someone that thinks that markets and institutions matter more? Uh, and then and the other axis is a sort of optimistic or more pessimistic set of perspectives around um, the opportunities and risks that the current moment presents. Uh, and from that, develop this idea of four, kind of the four quadrants of a, a liberal optimist, a liberal pessimist, a realist optimist, and a realist pessimist. So really quickly, um, liberal optimists are basically people who think that uh, the shared interest that we have, particularly in the global economy, um, will ultimately prevail, and that liberal, you know, sort of rational sense of shared interests and, and cost-benefit analysis will mean that, yeah, we've got to work to overcome some of the problems of information and we've got to have some institutions to bring people together and to help help them with the politics of managing this. But overall, the policy settings we've got are okay. Um, the big challenge of a Sino-American conflict or something else like that just isn't going to happen because the golden straitjacket and all of that sort of stuff. Um, liberal pessimists are people who say, well, overall, you know, markets and interests are probably likely to pull things in the right direction, but the problem we've got is that there are some countries that don't realise the importance and significance of liberal institutions and liberal values, and particularly countries that are illiberal, um, countries like China, countries like Russia, um, are ultimately flawed because they're not liberal, uh, and that they have those, those flaws, and this is their view, this is not my view, but their flaws, we need to A, prepare to guard against them, so the, the illiberal states are the ones who are going to spend a lot on their militaries and going to do adventurous things that are, that's that risk upsetting the, geo, the geopolitical order. And so we've got to guard against it. We've got to contain um, those risks. But these people also argue that the flaws in those systems are ultimately going to doom those countries. So that in the end, the weaknesses and problems of the Chinese model will mean that if we can hold the line, they'll eventually fall in on themselves in one shape or one form or another. Uh, but then you've got the realist optimists. They, they, these are the folks who say it's less about the economic interests and it's more about power and that the concentration of power in China, the revival of Russia and elsewhere, mean that we've actually got to reconfigure a bit what we do. And in particular, we've got to make ourselves much more militarily capable, both individually and collectively with the United States, of seeing off these, these um, problems. But we're optimistic about the prospects of being able to do so. And then the liberal, the realist pessimists are the ones who say, you know, it's basically the game is up. Um, the redistribution of power is irreversible in the way that it's going. These are people who see uh, America and the sort of American primacy, the American the st sort of structure of the regional order around American primacy is already done. Um, and that unless we very significantly reorient ourselves to recognise this, then very, very bad things are going to happen. Uh, so where we're at now, I think that amongst those four things, the Australian government's policy is now in the kind of liberal pessimist camp, so that we're, and that's why we're spending this money on defence and the like, and we feel that there are risks there that, they, that weren't there, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, where I think you had a kind of, kind of liberal optimist setting in Australian foreign policy. Um, but the view is ultimately, you know, markets will win, America will... St I mean, read the Australian foreign policy white mm -hmm. paper and you see a very optimistic view. I mean, this is one of the, I think, the most notable features of Julie Bishop's uh, term in office as foreign minister is she has a sort of relentlessly optimistic public outlook about the world yeah. and the role of the United States, the role of the global economy. Um, but set aside this, we've got these risks that we have to manage, particularly led by illiberal states, and we've got to hold the line against them.
Well, thanks so much for taking the time to record a podcast on the sidelines of this conference. And I would encourage all of our listeners to read a draft of your paper when it becomes available. And I believe that Nick will be tweeting a link to that um, if you follow him on Twitter, at Nick Bisley. That's at Nick Bisley, just one word. Thanks for joining us, Nick. Thanks for spruiking the work. (laughs) Pleasure, Simone. If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe to the ACRI podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud or listen to all episodes on our website, australiachinarelations.org. There you'll also find out more about ACRI's research and events. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at ACRI underscore UTS and on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening. 